John chapter 3 is where we are at today. John chapter 3, I want to read verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now if you're reading from the NIV, it says he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. In other words, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin Council. It was a Jewish Supreme Court, you might say, or a Jewish Senate. Seventy members in all, and they were very powerful, and they were very elite, and eventually it would be this court that would sentence Jesus to death. Nicodemus was a part of that council. But it seems to me as I read through this passage of Scripture that he has a different spirit about him than what most of the others seem to have. Instead of being proud, it seems to me that he is more humble, more teachable, and more sincere. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Have you thought about why, why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night? Was it because he didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus, maybe particularly by his fellow council members? Was he afraid of them? Maybe he wanted to use the cover of darkness so that they didn't see him talking to Jesus. Or... Was he thinking there was a better chance of talking to Jesus privately if he came at this hour? And he would have more time to talk with him uh, extensively if he came later after the crowds had dispersed. We really don't have the answer to this question as to why he came at night. It could have been one or both of these reasons. But I can't help but notice how Nicodemus addresses Jesus. He calls him rabbi or teacher, some of your Bibles may say. It actually means my master. He comes to him, he says, my master. And so he is definitely showing respect for Jesus. He's not here to try and dupe Jesus like other Pharisees will do in later chapters. He says, we know that you have come from God. As a teacher. And then he points to the miracles that Jesus has been doing as the basis for what he has just said. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God because of the signs or the miracles that you have been doing. What miracles? To this point in this chronological series that we're looking at... We have only been told of one miracles, and that was the miracle in Cana where he turned the water into wine. Apparently, though, Jesus has been doing more miracles than what we even have record of. If you look back at John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. And so, yes, he must have been doing more miracles than what we are told about, that we are, than what we are given detail of. He's doing miracles here at the Passover time in Jerusalem. 
And it reminds me of what John wrote at the end of his gospel, the very last verse of his writing. He tells us that that what we know of Jesus' miracles is just a fraction of what he really did. He said, I suppose that if the whole world were able to contain the books, or if, 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 if we were told of every miracle that Jesus did, that the whole world would not even be able to contain all of the books that it would take to write them down. It sure makes you think about what we don't know. Nicodemus says to Jesus, these miracles that you are doing give evidence to the fact that you are from God. Interestingly, Jesus kind of just ignores what Nicodemus says to him, and he gets straight to the point of what he wants to say to Nicodemus. Let me read to you verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was so direct with his words and so emphatic. He says, looking at Nicodemus, he says, You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus senses the seriousness of his words. And so he asked Jesus for clarification. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? (laughs) He's confused. He's on a different wavelength than what Jesus is on. And so Jesus, in verse 5, is going to say to him, Again, what he has already said, he's just going to say it a little bit differently. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. To be born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. Now tell me, what event has recently happened with Jesus where both water and the Spirit are present. It's his baptism. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, and the Spirit of God, you remember, came down upon him like a dove in bodily form. Jesus is making a point to Nicodemus here about baptism. He is saying, you read on, verse 7, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, if I have somebody tell me I must do something... I pretty well understand what they are saying. If they say to me, Kevin, if you want to stay in good standing with your wife, then you must remember your 30th anniversary that's coming up just around the corner. (laughs) I understand what they're saying. It would not be a good idea to let that day slip by without recognition. You must remember A few weeks ago, I had to replace the water heater at my house. The old one had worn out. And so I thought, you know, it would be a good good idea to read the instructions before I get started on this job, just to refresh my memory of what I'll 
uh, steps I need to do here. And the very first point of instruction was this. You must turn off your source of water before you install the unit. And I understand that pretty easily. By the way, I did do that. (laughs) You know, that's a good idea to follow those kinds of instructions. How many of you came in a car today to church? Okay, most everybody did. I'm going to give you a point of instruction. When you get back in your car, if you want it to go, you must turn the key on. I mean, these kinds of instructions are very clear to us. I've told you that I like to play racquetball. If you're down at Buck Run, you may see me down there from time to time on the court. It was funny, a few weeks ago, uh, Kevin Addington and I had been playing a game on Saturday afternoon. A young mom came up to us after the game was over, and she congratulated us for making it to the top of the hour. And I thought that was a little strange. I didn't know quite what she was getting at. And then she explained further. She had two younger sons who were standing out there watching us play. And they were saying to each other, these two old guys, they'll never make it to the top of the hour. (laughs) Well, if you're going to play racquetball, there are some rules that you must follow. If you're going to serve, you must stand between the two solid lines that run parallel with each other on the court. And as you serve that ball, your ball must hit the front wall first, or else it's a foul. Now, there can be some combination of walls after that, but it must hit the front wall first. And if you are trying to to return my serve... And you're in the backcourt, your ball, after you hit it, it must hit the front wall before it hits the floor. Those are the rules of the game, and and they're important rules if you want to play the game right. You see, we understand the word must, don't we? Jesus said, you must be born again. He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, this is Jesus talking. It's not me. It's not anyone other than Jesus himself who's talking here. John's writing down his his communication to Nicodemus. And I notice the emphasis given with each of these statements. I notice that he doesn't leave any wiggle room. He's very clear. He says, this is what you must do. Seth Wilson was a professor of mine at Ozark Christian. He's passed away now, but he leaves behind some of his writing. And I have one of his books on my shelf that I look at as I'm studying some of these uh, messages through the Gospels. And uh, he has this about being born again. I quote, he says, the whole world is guilty before God and under sentence to die. Now, why would he say that? Because of our sin. We're all sinners. We all have fallen short of God's will. 
and the wages of sin is death. The scriptures are very clear about that. And so he says the whole world is guilty before God and under sentence to die. A comprehensive look at man in his sins makes us say, why doesn't God wipe out this sin-degraded race and make a creature that is not subject to sin's dominion and seduction? Why doesn't He make a new race of men that will do His will? And he answers his own question. He says, that is exactly what God is doing. Thank God that He was not willing to lose what could be saved. Thank God that we have an opportunity through Christ to choose to be of that new creation, to cut off the old man voluntarily and let the Lord of life remake us. Unquote. And I hope and pray that each of you have chosen to be born again. We all need that. We need a new start. We need forgiveness of our sins. We need for the old to be gone and for the new to come. Only Jesus can work that miracle for us. His death on the cross made that all possible. Now don't think that Jesus is saying that all you have to do is just step into the water and be baptized. And that's, that's it. Satan would like for us to thank that, but there is so much more to it than that. You have to have a personal faith in Jesus as the Son of God. And later in this chapter, you know what's coming, John chapter 3, verse 16. And there's several verses that surround it. There's all kinds of verses that talk about having a personal belief, a personal faith in Jesus as the Son of God. We must believe in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. You can't be saved without faith. But know this too. You can't be saved without repentance. Your attitude has to be correct. You have to be sorry for your sins and confess them to God asking Him to forgive you. Luke 13, 3 says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's Jesus talking. And again, he's very to the point. He's easy to understand in that passage of Scripture. You have to die to your old ways. That's what repentance means. And so what do you do with a dead person? You bury them. You are buried then in the waters of Christian baptism, according to Romans 6, 4. And you raise up to walk in newness of life. That's what the verse says. We've been therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, when we give our lives to Jesus, He makes us new. And He gives to us the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit comes and makes His home in our heart. That's what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. And there are a couple of other verses in Scripture that I can call to your attention that have this combination of, of water and the Spirit. Acts 2.38 says, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. What a difference He can make in our life. I've asked a couple of people to come and share a testimony with you this morning. Just a few Sunday nights ago, uh, we in our small group were challenged by the video lesson to write down our story and then to be ready to share that with the group the next week. And we did that. And two of those folks from my small group on Sunday night are going to come and share their story with you. The first will be Wendy Garrett. She's one of our recent new members of the church. The second is my wife of almost 30 years, Cindy. Wendy? I grew up in church, in and out, and after a while, it became very common. I no longer cared about what was being preached or taught. I went to see my friends, and that was it. I was a freshman in high school when I went on a downward slope. I had become anorexic because I thought weighing over 85 pounds was a catastrophe, and I had begun to self-mutilate my body because my boyfriend and my friends were doing it. Eventually, my eating disorder and cutting consumed me and filled me full of fear and low self-esteem and eventually depression. <laughs> I was a junior in high school, and it was December 4th, 2005, and I was trying to cry myself to sleep. It was then I felt that I had to then make a decision. So I dried my eyes and knelt by my bed, and I told God that I really screwed up my life and that I was getting nowhere being in charge of it. So since I couldn't do a good job of it, then it was his turn. I would give God a chance to see that if he could do a better job being in charge of my life than me. I later on stood up and felt such peace and immediately went to bed and fell right to sleep. And it was the next year that on November 19th that I was baptized in a creek out back from the church that I had attended. And since that night in December and November 19th, God had truly done a much better job of being in charge of my life than I could have ever done. Amen. I was raised in a Christian home from the day I was born, and I made a decision to become a Christian when I was young. I was about seven years old. I didn't have a huge change in my life, like a lot of people do. I didn't go from a life of deep sin to a life of great change, but I just continued on the road I was on and tried to live my life for, for Jesus and to do what he wanted, although I certainly wasn't perfect. I remember the first big crisis in my life, though, as an adult, after we were married. All my life, I had dreamed of being a mom and being married and a mom. And not too, months after, not too many months after we were married, I found out that I was unable to get pregnant. I was devastated. Uh, that had been a part of my plans and dreams for all my life, and now that came crashing down. I remember driving home to Tyro from Coffeeville one day and thinking, this isn't how I had my life planned. <laughs> 
My husband and I started going to our family doctor and later to an infertility doctor, trying to find out what the problem was. During that time, I was crying out to God. Psalms 142.7 says, Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. And I have written in the margin by that verse, Help me, Lord, and it's dated October 22nd, 1985. I would sing a couple of songs that really ministered to my heart during the dark times. One's taken from Psalms that says, You are my hiding place. And the other song says, Thank you, Lord, for the trials that come my way. And that way I can grow each day as I let you lead. Things didn't go so well in figuring out what was wrong at that time. So we decided to stop going to the doctor. I didn't want to stop because I thought I would get my baby through going to the doctor. But I surrendered my will to the prompting of the Lord to my husband. The next day I put my thermometer away because I'd been taking my temperature for two to three years. And I felt such freedom. I have found throughout my life that if I surrender my will and let God take control that things may not work out exactly as I had planned, but he always knows what's best for me, and he never leaves me alone. I can count on him to walk with me all through the hard times. After we made the decision to stop going to the doctor, about six, six weeks later we got a call asking if we would be interested in adopting a baby. We prayed about it for a couple of weeks, and on Mother's Day we said yes. And 10 weeks later, on July 17, 1986, we had a baby boy, Jonathan, nine months after that notation in my Bible. You know, what a difference Jesus makes in our life if we will surrender ourselves to him. And let the Holy Spirit rule over us. Every one of us have a story to tell. And there are people out there who can be touched by your story. Maybe, maybe your story would be along that line of, you know, I lived in the darkness and then I found the light. Some of you have that kind of a story. And people need to hear that kind of a story. And others of us, like Cindy or like myself, would be, you know, we grew up in the church. And so, you know, that's my story. I grew up in the church my whole life. I, I bet, I was thinking about this as I prepared for this sermon, I bet the number of times that I've missed Sunday morning church in my whole life could be counted on both hands, both the fingers on both hands. And I would have several fingers left over having finished that count. That's the kind of family I grew up in. We were in church every Sunday, and God's blessed me to this point with good enough health that I can say that kind of a story. But I remember when I gave my life to Jesus. It wasn't a great drastic change that took place in my life, but I can certainly say as I've grown older and as I've matured in Him that He has made such a difference in my life. He gives me peace amidst the storms of life. He gives, he, he is my anchor to hold on to when those storms come. When the wind begins to blow and the, and the waves start rolling high, if I keep my eyes on Him, I know I can weather the storm because He is bigger than any storm that I face. And recently our family has had several storms. But I am confident 
that He will never leave our side. And He will get us through even these storms. I, I wonder, have you been born again? And has He made a difference in your life? Later, as you read on in this chapter, John chapter 3, He reflects upon the people of Israel during the time of Moses. The story is found in Numbers chapter 21. You may remember the people of God were very good at complaining. And God had had it up to here with all of their complaints. And so He sent poisonous snakes among them. And so many of the people were being bitten and they were dying. And this was God's judgment against them. And they cried out to Moses to intercede for them. And Moses did. And God told him, you remember, to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And that way, if somebody was bitten by one of these snakes, they could look at the bronze serpent and they could be healed. Every one of us here have been bitten by a snake. He's called the dragon of old. Lucifer is his name and his bite is deadly. And I want you to know there has been a standard raised up a long time ago. And that standard is the old rugged cross. And on that cross was a Savior named Jesus. And if we will look to Him, we can be saved and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other way to be saved other than through Jesus Christ. John three fourteen and 15 says, And Moses lifted up the serpent. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in Him have eternal life. Listen, friend. You must believe. And you must be born again. Let's pray together. Thank you, dear Jesus, for being willing to be the one on that cross. And thank you that salvation is through you. And we have that opportunity to be saved. We have that opportunity to look to you and to be freed from our sins. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has never looked to Jesus, might they choose to do that. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen.